It's good to be back here this morning. I was not with uh, Hagerstown Church last Sunday. And let me just say this. Some people are like, well, hey, you were out one week. That's true. But when you miss church, when you don't get to gather with the saints, that's seven days you know, in between. But if you miss that day, guess what? It's a whole nother what? It's a whole nother. It's 13 days since the last time that I've seen you guys. And I was, I was uh, running up these back stairs. I could hear people talking and singing. And as I opened that door, I was, my heart just like overflowed with joy to be here with you guys again this morning. So whether you're happy to see me or not, uh, it's irrelevant. I'm incredibly excited to see you. And speaking of seeing you, one more thing I'll say. Uh, welcome uh, First Baptist uh, Church of Hagerstown folks. There's several here throughout the, the audience today. And so we're glad to have you guys here with us this morning. We know that the Lord is going to bless us as we look at his word, not because of me uh, or because of these comfortable chairs, uh, but he's going to bless because the word is going to be read and preached for us this morning. And so as we look to him, uh, we will be encouraged and he will be glorified. Um, so thankful uh, for Pastor Chris last week preaching. Uh, I told him I, I, I hate to not preach at Hagerstown Church, but if I'm not going to preach, I want Chris to do it. He does a really good job, loves the Lord, shepherds the people, and handles the word of God in a, in a, in a very, very helpful way. But last week, uh, we saw that Paul had given thanks, or over the course of the last few weeks, that Paul had given thanks for the Philippians. Uh, he shared even some of the content there for them. Uh, he also shared with them that, that he was rejoicing, even in prison. And, uh, and, and Chris really did a great job working through that. At First Baptist Church, we saw this idea that, that even death, even death is the pathway to Christ, as we, as we read last week in this text. But as Paul works through those comments and those thoughts, he then transitions into calling the church at Philippi to rise up and, and execute some very, very important duties. And we're going to look at those this morning. And so what has God called the church at Philippi to do? And by extension, what has he therefore called us to do as well this morning? If you have your copy of God's word, I want to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 and onward. We'll move into chapter 2 all the way down to verse 11. As you're turning there, let me just say this quickly. Um, every single week, uh, we, we already have determined what we're going to be looking at next week in the sermon. And so one of the ways that, that you can help me preach better sermons is that you be a better listener. I, I read that recently. Actually, actually uh, Reverend Bill Miller, uh, the famous Reverend Bill Miller from First Baptist Church, he actually wrote that in the, their bulletin or loop last week. He said that uh, great sermons are comprised of good preaching and great listening. So uh, listen, for all of the great preaching that I'm going to try to do, uh, I need to have, we, or we need to have great listening. And so one of the ways that you can be a great listener is to begin listening to the Word of God long before Sunday morning. And so i uh, give you a, a heads up. Um, th this morning, we're going to be working through the text until Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 11. And you could actually read the next pericope or the next passage. Um, it'll, be, uh, it'll be listed out there um, online. You can check it out. So be, uh, keep that, make that part of your rhythm. Maybe on Saturday evening as you go to bed, maybe throughout the week in, in family worship, maybe your family looks at that together. Uh, at any rate, you can make uh, this time together more profitable if you're more prepared when you show up. So that wasn't a rebuke. You guys are so prepared. I can tell on your faces. You're all ready. Just give us the word. Okay. All right. Here we go. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 and following. This is what the word of God says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel 
and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on, and, on, and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Let's ask him together to bless it. Father, again, we take a moment and pause. We give you the glory as you have given to us your word. We pray that as we hear it preached, as we hear it read, that it would quicken our hearts, that it would encourage us, Father, that it would solidify our unity in Christ, in the Spirit. We pray through all these things as we lift up Jesus, Father, that you would be glorified here in this place. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, amen. The main idea that I want you to latch on to this morning as we work through this text is that unity is possible when we have the mind of Christ. Unity is possible when we have the mind of Christ. I think it's so important that we recognize something this morning. This text was actually chosen uh, by myself and Chris to be preached today, but not uh, recognizing that we would be in the middle of a merge, even to the point that some of the folks from First Baptist would be here, and of course we would be here together. As we think about this morning, I don't want our immediate context to, to skew or draw our attention to or excuse what we're learning from the text here, but I think it's so applicable. I want to draw attention to it. If we're to have unity as we move forward as a church, as one church, First Baptist, coming together with Hagerstown Church, it's going to only take place if we have the mind of Christ. And so clearly, we have listed for us what the mind of Christ looks like. And so I can't wait to look at it. But let me say this first and foremost, and this goes not just to First Baptist, but mainly to Hagerstown Church. 
It's going to be so easy for us to say, yes, unity is possible so long as we have the mind of Christ and everything goes according to the way that I like it. If that's what you're thinking this morning, you're wrong. And that's the wrong attitude. And I've been told I shouldn't say we could just close the book and go home. Uh, don't, I'm not supposed to say that anymore because somebody said if, if I said that again, they would get up and walk out uh, just to call my bluff. So I won't do that. But really, we could. Unity is possible amongst the folks at Hagerstown Church, amongst the folks at First Baptist, and even, Lord willing, between the two. But it's only going to be possible if we have the mind of Christ. So let's work through this text together this morning. I have a few signposts. I'm going to hold them uh, to myself until we get to that point. But uh, let's just jump into the text there in verse 27. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I remember often reading portions of Scripture like this and thinking that God's word was addressed to me. And it is. It is addressed to me. And it's addressed to you. And when I say you, I'm speaking uh, as an individual. And so you can look at this text and you can ask the question, what does God want from me as an individual? And, and this is what he would want, that your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But that's not all that's being said. And as a matter of fact, that's not primarily what's being said. If you could just take the English translation and peer behind it into the Greek, you'd see that this is actually when he says, let your manner of life, he's saying you ends. Let y'all's manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This command is, it is a command, by the way. It's not addressed to the individual Christian. It is addressed to the congregation. That their life, that their inner working together, that their polity be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Plural. Addressing the church. And what's more, manner of life actually means manner of life, but manner of life in relation to others. And so not only does he highlight for us that this is an address to the public, this is, this is an address to the church, this is a command for all of us collectively, but he goes on to say, uh, use, using this word that's underneath manner of life, that speaks of your manner of life in relation to others, in relation to the public. That's the same root word as polity or politics. It's not a one-man show. These instructions are not for one person or one family and, and not just for one uh, group of elders. This is for all of us. My mind goes back to, to, to times where you've, you've seen the fire alarm go off and you, you think, when you hear the fire alarm, what is it saying? It's saying, get out, right? In the English language, right? It's like, it's translated, get out, right? But it's not just get out. Implied there is you get out, right? Furthermore, it's not just you get out, but it's everybody out. And so often, even in the local church, when we hear the fire alarm, what do we do? When we see these commands going off, what do we do? Well, we say, I'll make sure that I follow that command. But this is a command that we cannot follow by ourselves. If this were a fire alarm saying, get out, it's saying, you all get out. And together, we must work together to what? To get out. Not leaving anyone behind. Manner of life in relation to others. Really, it has this idea this, of this, this polity, this manner of life in relation to others, has this 
idea of citizenship. As a matter of fact, I think Paul's alluding to this idea of citizenship. And furthermore, he says that they are citizens of heaven in chapter 3, verse 20. And so we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven. You'll probably remember that the city of Philippi is there in Macedonia. They are actually a Roman colony. Which you might say, well, isn't that very common? Aren't all Greek city-states, aren't they all Roman colonies? No, they're not, as a matter of fact. Uh, this city and, and, and enjoyed special privileges. And so you, if, you, if you were a citizen of Philippi, you had special Roman privileges there in the kingdom. And Paul is saying that you not only are a citizen of Philippi, but Christian, you are also a citizen of heaven. You're a citizen of heaven. And what should polity look like amongst the citizens of heaven? What should it look like? Well, it should look like this. It should look like the people are interacting with each other in accordance with the gospel, in a, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Think of this. The gospel is good news that Jesus offers salvation to all who have placed their faith in him. The gospel is good news of what God has done in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. It's the message that a holy God provides in Christ the righteousness which you so desperately need. That's good news. That God would send His Son to absorb His own wrath that burns against sinners. What's the gospel? And so what does it look like to operate in a manner that's worthy of the gospel when we see that we have been given a free gift? And that that sacrifice wasn't just for you, but it was for you all. It was for all who would place their faith in Christ. And none of us have earned our seat at the table. None of us have earned our citizenship. It was won for us, by the way, much like the citizenship that the, Philippi, the Philippians enjoyed there in Rome. That's a fun history fact you can search out later. Last week, Pastor Chris, he led Hagerstown Church to communion. This morning, First Baptist Church, we took communion this morning. Remember this, it wasn't a meal just between you and God. It's not your happy time with God. Your quiet time with God. No, as a matter of fact, when we come to the communion table, we are coming in a manner worthy of the gospel, saying that I've not received it, and I won't hinder others from coming. In fact, I'll, I'll bring others with me to the table, so to speak. Operating in a manner worthy of the gospel. The gospel isn't about you. The gospel isn't about me. The gospel is about God saving sinners and calling them out of the world into the light, and into his church. So when you act in a selfish, self-honoring, myopic way, it doesn't cause the church to flourish. No, as a matter of fact, it's not even in accordance with the gospel. It's not worthy of the gospel. You're acting in a manner worthy of the gospel. Again, when we bring others to the table. Because of the political climate that the Philippian church was in, Paul emphasizes their need for unity. Why? Because their safety depended on it. They needed each other. 
They needed to be unified together. John 13, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Maybe you guys remember this text from your reading this week. How many of you, by show of hands, are, are, are doing the reading plan? Many of you are still there. Do you remember the, the, the text in John 13? What does Jesus encourage his disciples to do after he has just done for them? To wash one another's feet. He encouraged his disciples to wash one another's feet. He said, this is what I've done for you. Now you go and do it for others. He doesn't discourage personal hygiene, so to speak, but he does encourage that corporate hygiene be a corporate affair, that we work together to cleanse one another, so to speak, that we serve one another. Jesus is calling his disciples to serve one another, and what are they doing when they wash each other's feet? They're acting in a way. They're living their life in accordance with what? In accordance with the gospel. But moving on, he says that so whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you see the theme here that Paul is continuing to, to pull on? It's not about you. It's not about you by yourself. He's wanting us to stand firm in one spirit. Striving side by side together for the faith of the gospel. How many gospels are there, by the way? How many good news are there actually? There's only one. There's only real one good news. Paul addresses that in Galatians chapter 1. There are false gospels, there are fake gospels, but there's only one gospel. Incidentally, how many spirits are there? How many holy spirits are there? There's only one. Ephesians chapter 4 says there's only one body. There's only one universal church. There's only one Holy Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope, the one gospel that belongs to your call. One Lord. One faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see the, the theme that Paul is wanting us to pick up on today? That there be unity in the church. There's only one spirit. There should be only be one mind striving together, one focus for the faith of the gospel. There is a dangerous, dangerous climate that the Philippian church faces. Paul addresses that in 28. He says, and don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. Who are the opponents in the Philippian church? Well, we talked about this a moment ago. Uh, Philippi is a Roman colony, and so who is the Lord of Philippi? Well, Caesar. But the Christians, they have a, another Lord, the Philippian jailer, our friend that we met several weeks ago in Lydia, and, and perhaps even uh, this woman, that, this young lady who had been possessed by a demon. They have a new Lord. And who is that Lord? That Lord is Jesus. As they're called to submit to Caesar and call Him Lord, the Christians say, we can't do so. And their lives look obviously quite different. They're engaged in a fight, a culture war, as it were. And that war that they're facing was quite more dangerous. 
than the one that we would face even today. The climate was more hostile, and yet they knew, Paul knew even greater, the truths that Martin Luther would pen several centuries later. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. They knew there was one faith, they knew there was one Lord, and Paul was reminding them of that. And they were standing firm. Paul was calling them to stand firm, to work side by side, and to be unafraid. As I read this passage, meditated on this week, I couldn't help but, but see in my mind the Greek phalanx. It's a group of men, 16 this way, 16 wide, 16 deep, all armed with a large pike, over 12 feet long, short sword on their side and a shield strapped around their chest. And these men would move together into battle, all of them working together, working alongside one another. And when they stayed together, when they were side by side, when they had one spirit, they were undefeatable. If they refused to retreat, if they moved forward, their enemy's demise was imminent. And to the enemy, if the soldier wanted to live, if you saw that, 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 that body, that formation coming towards you, if you wanted to live, you'd need to cut and run because it could not be defeated. This is how Alexander the Great conquered most of the world. If they were to stay, that would mean defeat. To live would mean to run. But not for those that are in that formation. When you're in that formation, 16 wide, 16 deep, all with that large pike, all pointed forward, the first five rows pointing their pikes forward, the rest of them raising them straight up, still one sword in the hand and a shield around their chest. They were literally undefeated, undefeatable. The Greeks, they adopted this under Philip II, and Alexander the Great, he exploited it. I think Paul has this picture in mind. As he says, have one spirit. Strive, wrestle, fight side by side, and do not be afraid. Why? He says this is a clear sign to them. When you're in that formation, when you're standing in one spirit, when you're striving side by side, it's a sign to your enemy of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When you see Alexander's army appearing over the horizon in this unified formation, you know it is over. And from the perspective of those in the formation, how was it that their salvation would be secured? How would they live through the battle? How would they make it through the fight? It would be to stay in formation. Battle is a dangerous, dangerous place. But the safest place for you on the field is in this formation, standing side by side with your brothers and sisters, alone by yourself, running in, in fear. You're defenseless. But in unison, you're impervious. Why? Because the salvation has come from God. Because the spirit that you're standing in is the spirit of God. Furthermore, in verse 29, it says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, 
engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It's been granted that you both suffer and believe, that you believe and that you suffer. Matthew Henry, he talks about these two precious gifts. He says, one is to believe in Christ. The second is to suffer for Christ. The fact that our adversaries cause us to experience the second gift indicates that we have truly, get this, received the first. While suffering is never pleasant, it is a privilege and honor to suffer for the Christ who suffered so very much to save his people. When we suffer, notice this, when we wrestle in the fight, when we struggle in battle, one by one, striving together, In that moment, we see that we have received that as a gift, the opportunity to suffer. It has been given as a gift, and it further confirms for us that we have received the first one, and that is the grace to believe. One pastor said this, the Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. We are sons in the family, enjoying the fellowship of the gospel, as we saw in verse 11 of chapter 1. But that's not all. We're servants sharing in the furtherance of the gospel as we see in the verses following. But finally, we see here that we are soldiers defending the faith of the gospel as it goes forward. Christians must resist Satan's attacks on the gospel and on the truth of the gospel. And we can't do that by breaking rank and running off the battlefield. We are to live as citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, we are a part of this formation. One spirit, striving side by side, unified together, not in fear, but in confidence, fulfilling our orders. And so we're citizens of heaven. We see that clearly in the text. And as we move forward, we'll see that Paul continues to develop this idea that we are citizens, not just of Philippi or not just of Hagerstown, but also of heaven. But we'll also see this very clearly. He's already underlined this for us so clearly, but he'll continue to develop this, this call to unity. That's the second signpost for us this morning. And he furthers his argument for unity There in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord one and, uh, and of one mind. Paul really piles up these conditional statements. If there is encouragement in Christ, If there's comfort from love or participation in the Spirit or affection, he piles these things up, and it almost seems as if he's saying, I don't really know if they exist in your church, but I hope that they do, and if they do, do these things. That's not what he's saying. Paul actually believes that these things are present. And not only does he believe that that they're present, but he expects that they will flow then into their natural conclusion. Let me me show you what I mean. Actually, but first... I want you to notice something about this, the, the stacked, up, uh, uh, stacked up clauses here. He says, any encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit. Do you notice a structure there? Do you notice the, the Trinity is present there in those clauses? 
Encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit. Let's talk briefly about the context. Here you have the Philippian church. They're going through their own suffering there in Philippi. They're struggling with how to stand firm one with another, to hold fast and and have a worthy profession of faith, worthy of the gospel. Uh, Furthermore, they know that Paul is struggling as well, that Paul is suffering persecution. In the face of all of these things, they are concerned that Paul will die. They may never see him again. They won't receive that help. And Paul says, hey, is there any encouragement in Christ? You better know the Philippian church was encouraged in Christ in that moment. The context is suffering. The context is struggle. They were encouraged in Christ. We may not be facing the exact thing that Paul has been facing, but I'm sure that all of us have struggled with some sort of suffering, whether it be physical or even theological relational we all have our ways that we suffer collectively as a church we'll even work through our own struggles together and yet in those moments what do we find we find what paul expects the philippians to find and that is encouragement in christ he says is there encouragement in christ amongst you furthermore he's he's asking have you been encouraged in christ through my ministry i know that i have been with you he moves on any comfort from love I think this stands in place of God. Any comfort of love from God. I think of 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. So we see encouragement in Christ, but now we also see the love of God. And how do we know that they've been adopted? How do we know that the Philippians are called the children of God? We'll go back to the greeting. What does Paul say at the very beginning? He alludes to the fact that they have been adopted into the family by God, and he's confident of that. And what about the fellowship of the Spirit? He's asking, have you enjoyed the fellowship that the Holy Spirit gives? Well, of course they had. Paul talks about that, right? Two weeks ago, he he, he says, from the first day until now, he's enjoyed this fellowship with them. The Spirit had adopted them and added them to the family as citizens of heaven. They're walking in fellowship both with God and even with Paul. He's saying, you've received the good news. I think you have. You're concerned for me. You're walking in fellowship with me. You want to encourage me. You've been comforted. I've been comforted. And he's saying, if all of these things are true then why don't you continue in those ways, continue to, be, to experience comfort, continue to experience encouragement, continue to enjoy in fellowship. But he says all of those things, they'll, they'll, if they continue, they will culminate in his increasing joy. Now, Paul was already experiencing quite a bit of joy, wasn't he? But he's saying, hey, my meter of joy can continue to increase. And how would that take place? How would his joy continue? If they were to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying if if God's compassion and, and mercy have produced these qualities in you toward me, then would you also then extend that mindset, extend that love, that unity? Would you not see that extended one one to the other? We'll get into more of the details here in the future, but Paul is aware that there is a lack of unity there in the church at Philippi. 
Their relationship, maybe between them and God, seemed to be good. Their relationship, even with Paul, was great. They had just given him a gift, and he was thankful for it. And yet, Paul knows that for many of them, at least for some of them, the relationship, one with the other, was not so good. And Paul is saying, if you're willing to give me that love, if you're willing to be in accord with me, would you not also do that one with the other? And this is where we get to the most challenging part of this text for us. Because we live in the real world, don't we? We live in a world where we hurt each other. Or we say things that we shouldn't say. We do things that we shouldn't do. Or we don't do things that we should do. One for the other. It's so difficult in that sort of climate to operate, in that context, to operate with the the MO of selfish ambition and selfish protection and pride. It's so difficult for us. But Paul speaks directly against that in verse 3, and he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Our self-love has gone so far in the church that even Jesus is teaching that, that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We, 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 we sort that out to say, well, we really need to learn to love ourselves first. And once we do that, then we can begin to love others. That's how selfish we actually can become or have become, I should say. And yet on, in contrast to that, Paul's saying, hey, let each esteem others better than himself. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing from conceit, but operating with a spirit of humility. Let each count others more significant than yourselves. Maybe this is a, too corny for some of you. We're too learned for this, but do you remember that formula that we used to hear when we were kids? It's so simple, but I think it's true. Do you want to have joy? Do you want to have real joy? Well, you break joy down into the acronym, Jesus, others, you. That's what Paul is teaching us today. That's what he's demonstrating for us today one of the great themes of the book of philippians is joy joy in christ paul emulates that he displays that for us very clearly that you can't spell joy without putting jesus first others second and yourself last let me ask you this if we're to apply this principle if we're to apply this principle and really see unity, what would it look like in our culture? What would it look like in this church? Well, in the local church, it would look like us serving one another. I challenged myself and my D group this week, what would it look like for us to wash each, other, each other's feet? It would be so difficult to hold a grudge against somebody as you wash their feet, wouldn't it? We see this very clearly when mom and dad will say to their, to their children, hey, now you need to kiss and make up. Now give them a hug. Well, they'll give, I'll give them a hug. I'll squeeze them so tight. It, it, might, it might do some damage to their vertebrae, right? It's difficult to really love somebody when you're washing their feet. But what would it look like for us to wash one another's feet? I really want you to think about that. It would look like us setting aside our personal preferences 
It would, it, would, it, would, it would look like us offering forgiveness and taking the first step even to forgiveness. It would look like putting our preferences aside. What about the local church? Well, that's what we're looking mean, What about the universal church? What would it look like for us to really pursue others better than ourselves, to, to highly esteem others better than ourselves? Well, we would stop considering our own personal experience as it relates to God in the local church or the universal church, and we would lift up and consider others. Last week, or in, and even the week before, we've been thinking a lot about the church in Afghanistan and what they're suffering through, what they're struggling through. And what would it look like for us to really think of them better than we do ourselves or higher than we do ourselves, the church that's persecuted there in Afghanistan? Well, I know one way that it would practically it would look like us stopping and praying for them throughout the week. That time that we could use serving ourselves, we would give that to them in prayer. And what about our finances? As we round out the year, we end, we're about to enter into the fourth quarter of 2021. Does that even seem possible? As we come close to considering what Hagerstown Church will give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. We say, well, what would it look like for us to really esteem others better than ourselves? It might look like less lattes and more for Lottie Moon, Right? <laughs> You heard that here first. And returning back to this status of merging, what would it really look like for us to merge churches in a healthy way? It would look like this, us esteeming the other person's personal opinions and preferences higher and better than ourselves. And we'll see in just a moment that that's not going to involve compromising on the truth. It's not going to involve compromising on the truth. You can have unity all day long, but it will not be successful and it will not stand. But the unity that we are promised, the salvation that we're promised in Christ is that when we are unified in one spirit, striving together side by side with one mind based on the truth, that then our salvation is secure and the destruction of our enemies is also sure. That doesn't happen when we are striving against one another but standing side by side against the enemy. And so we see the components of unity are really found in humility and concern for others. And Paul ends and rounds out this passage this morning with giving us a perfect example. And I mean quite literally perfect example as he draws our attention to the mind of Christ. And he says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. One of the things I notice about the mind of Christ is that in his mind he saw an abundance and not a lack. Do you see what I mean here? The, the pre-incarnate Christ, before he came to earth, he already possessed equality with the Father and he had resolved not to cling to it. Where was his rightful place? Where was his rightful position? Right there next to the Father. And yet, what does he do? It says he doesn't see his equality with God a thing to be grasped or to, to chase after or to fight for. He knew it was secure. He knew it was his. And he was able to step aside. Similarly, church, we need not reach for righteousness or meaning or honor. And yet, if we do, and when we do, we do not experience unity. If you have a lack mentality, 
If you're always concerned about you being perceived by God and others as righteous, or you being perceived by God and others as having more meaning, and that somehow it's not going to be thought of that way, that God doesn't see you as having meaning, and and the church doesn't see you as having honor, then you will destroy the church. The mindset of Christ is that there is nothing lacking. So he was able to step aside and come and serve. As we work one with the other, they're in life group or D group or potlucks or whatever it is. If we have this lack mentality that there's not an abundance of righteousness to go around, there's not an abundance of honor and glory that will be given by God secured through Christ, then we will destroy one another. Jesus didn't, in his mind, he doesn't see a lack. He sees an abundance. And we too, because of the work of Christ, can see that same abundance and as we serve one another, we, we shouldn't have fear that when we leave our, our seat to wash someone else's feet that will somehow be displaced and lose meaning. That somebody has to see us serve in some certain way. There's an abundance to go around. That's part of the mind of Christ that we see here. It wasn't a thing that needed to be grasped. Moving forward in verse 7, he empties himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. One of the things that we see here, not just in this text, but undergirding this is the idea that Jesus was in submission to his father. Jesus was operating in submission and it wasn't operating by under the the, the impulse of self-will. We see him in the garden there before his crucifixion there, the week of his passion. What does he say? Father, let this cup pass. This is what you've determined from before time. I was in agreement with you, but still yet at this point in time, right before it takes place, could you let it pass? Could you let the cup pass? Nevertheless, though, your will be done. Jesus operated by emptying himself, uh, uh, emptying himself, his own personal will, became obedient to the Father, took on the form of a servant, and even was born in the likeness of men. What a shameful thing. He added him to himself, a human nature, retained his deity at the same time, but yet, what a shameful thing to become like his creation. Even the creation that had sinned against him. To identify with them. And yet he submitted to the Father's will. Even to the point of death. Even to the point of death on a cross. And one of the things that we know about death on a cross is that Romans were not supposed to be crucified they're not to be crucified only aliens only foreigners outsiders and servants could be crucified in the roman kingdom and jesus the one who created all things and holds them all together has a citizenship of heaven the king of heaven not just of rome but of all the earth submits himself to the point of death, this shameful death on the cross. What we see there in that last point is this idea that Jesus in his, his mindset was not comprised of fear, but his mindset was comprised in working out of love. Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 8 says that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And so what is the mindset of Christ? 
How are we to be unified as a church, both in this current configuration and possibly an emerged configuration? We have the mind of Christ when we operate out of love, one for the other, not in fear, but in love. When we submit to the Lord and not to our own devices, and we don't cause other people to submit to our own personal preferences, it's the mind of Christ realized in the local church. And when we operate not as a, in a scarcity mentality, but when we see the abundance of righteousness that God lavishes upon us, and the honor and the meaning that He gives to each of us, that we don't need to go after, we don't need to scramble and fight over that, it's not a thing to be grasped. It's already ours in Christ. As we come to a close this morning, I want to draw your attention back to that Greek-Roman formation, that phalanx. Sixteen rows, sixteen columns, all standing side by side, striving together working toward one goal in one spirit. That's a picture of the church. Moving forward towards the gates of hell. Promise to conquer. Saying this, Jesus is Lord of all and I'll serve my brother in arms. My brother next to me to the left and to the right by staying in formation, not being afraid, leaning my pike forward and my sword in hand. Because Jesus is our king we started here thinking with this idea that unity is possible when we have the mind of christ church it absolutely is let's have the mind of christ but not only is unity possible when we have the mind of christ but so is victory he's promised it to us and so with that in mind let's go to him and prayer and worship father we celebrate this morning that victory is secured through your Son. And that because of your work in our lives, we have encouragement in Christ. In accordance with the gospel, we've been freed, forgiven. We're encouraged in that. And Father, we, we sense the love that you've displayed through your Son on the cross. We see the love as we take your name and are called sons and daughters this morning. We walk in that love this morning. A love that's not scarce, but has lavishly been poured out on us. Spirit, we fellowship with you one with the other. Together as a unified church. And all these things are possible because of the work that you have done. Father, we pray for unity in our church. We pray for unity in our merge. And we pray that as this text ends, that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. We pray that that would begin here in this church. And as you call men and women to yourself, that that, that army would grow here in Hagerstown. And we would continue to see you moving forward and your kingdom coming here on earth. And we ask that these things be done, Jesus, in your name, for your glory. Amen.